Please note, this episode carries a content warning for sexual assault. We don't go into detail, but please be aware of this fact as you listen to the main interview. You're listening to Exploring Boys Education, a monthly podcast produced by the IBSC. I'm Bruce Collins. In this episode, we speak with Katie Kestner to highlight what every boy should know about consent. In Dr. Ada Sinekor's IBSC commissioned research, Responsible Sexual Citizenship, The Challenges Facing Boys, she highlights the need for consent education. She asserts that a strong foundation in consent behaviors, attitudes, knowledge and skills will serve students well as they become teenagers and young adults when they will need to apply consent to sexual activities that require going beyond obtaining a simple yes. Scaffolding consent training helps students understand how consent impacts their own experiences and the experiences of others. As well, it deconstructs the idea that consent is a unidirectional process of solely getting a yes, as was found in the IBSC study. Lisa Waters, Deputy CEO at the National Association for Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect in Australia, asserts that schools can't do this alone. Parents can't do this alone. We all have to say we're committed to this because we want change and we want to prevent it happening to another generation. Katie Kestner shares in this episode why it is important for boys' schools to be educating their students about consent and highlights how we can help boys to understand the qualities of respectful, healthy relationships. Focusing on the characteristics of affirmative and enthusiastic consent, Kestner suggests how we can empower boys to move from being bystanders to upstanders in social settings. But before I share this important conversation with you, I'm pleased again to welcome my colleague and interim IBSC Executive Director, Amy Ahart, to the microphone for the IBSC Newsreel. Thank you, Bruce, and hello, listeners. It's wonderful to be sharing this first IBSC Newsreel of 2022 with you, and we have much to look forward to. Later this month, we launch a two-part online program focused on the mental health and well-being of younger boys in partnership with Dr. Shimmy Kang and St. George's School in Canada. Session one will be hosted on January 25th, with session two a week later on February 1st. We have three online classes starting on February 7th. Responsible Sexual Citizenship in Today's World, The Challenges Facing Boys, Single Gender Education, A Course for Teachers New to Boys Schools, and The Tech Solution, Creating Healthy Habits for Boys Growing Up in a Digital World. Then, from February 15th to 18th, the first in our Research in Boys School series will be available on demand on our IBSC Shorts platform. St. Christopher's School in the United States will be sharing about how they, through their Center for the Study of Boys, have developed a school-based research program that enhances their understanding of best practice in the education of boys. We'd also like to highlight that heads of member schools in South Africa can sign up now for an IBSC Ideas Lab designed specifically for heads of school and principals. There are also still spots open in our Ideas Lab for teachers of color in boys' schools, which starts on February 17th. For more information about these and other programs, visit www.theibsc.org and register today. Our guest for this episode, Katie Kessner, is one of the United States' most sought-after experts on student safety and healthy relationships. 
In May 2021, Kessner presented an IBSC webinar on addressing and preventing sexual misconduct and boundary crossing for boys' schools. Bruce's interview with Kessner will highlight what every boy should know about consent and how boys' schools can facilitate this learning. Thank you, Katie, for joining this IBSC podcast, and over to you, Bruce. As I mentioned in the introduction to this episode, I'm joined for this important conversation by Katie Kessner. Katie is one of the United States' most sought-after experts on student safety and healthy relationships. She has been featured on the cover of Time Magazine, The Oprah Winfrey Show, NBC Nightly News, CNBC Talk Live, CNN, Larry King Live, Good Morning America, Later Today, MSNBC Entertainment Tonight, and other national television programs in the U.S., Additionally, she has lectured for over 5,000 schools and organizations in North America and around the world, is the architect of a sexual misconduct response system, model school sexual misconduct policies, model acceptable use of technology policies, the National Gender and Sexual Misconduct Climate Survey, and the Respect My Red Leadership Training Program. She has served as the Executive Director of the Take Back the Night Foundation since 2009, expanding the reach of the organization to include over 600 events in more than 30 countries around the globe in an effort to end sexual violence. Katie, uh, I would like to thank you for joining us uh, as we explore today what every boy should know about consent. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bruce. I am pleased to be here with you to talk about such an important topic. So, Katie, before we dive into speaking about consent, uh, would you be able to share some insight with our listeners about what, in your experience, in your field of expertise currently, are the issues that are most important for boys' schools and teachers of boys and parents of boys in this moment to be aware of? Well, you know, speaking on the topic at hand, of course, healthy relationships and consent and understanding gender uh, boundaries, I would say student professional boundaries, uh, interpersonal boundaries, and just overall relationships is perennially important. You know, always we can go back to the larger wellness topics of substance use and addiction, mental health, especially in this COVID era, always um, on the top of everyone's list as I work with independent schools and schools in general. But, um, you know, this topic we're going to delve into today, I think for a boys' school in particular, the times are changing in every place and space around the globe. Every country, the culture is shifting around what's okay and what's not. You know, even our Governor Cuomo here, who was, a, you know, called out for the way he would hold a woman's face in his hands, um, it, 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 his thought was, you know, I, that's my that's how I grew up. It's the family tradition. It's the cultural understanding of affection. And it, it wasn't meant to, you know, demean someone else. But clearly, the times are different. And while that might have been an acceptable behavior 30 years ago, perhaps to some, it certainly is going to be far less accepted by um, most people. So I think We've got to be really cognizant um, of how that expectation and understanding of a, of a boundary exists um, throughout the world. And so, I mean, that's really why I'm delighted to be having this conversation with you, Katie. We've had some other conversations and 
you, you've led some professional development opportunities for for IBSC schools, and and we hosted an online event um, in May 2021. Um, and so I'm delighted to be speaking to you about this important topic today. And I'd like to start with with diving into the importance of the conversations we need to be having with boys about consent. You know, so as we consider the prevalence of and our heightened awareness, as you've alluded to, um, of sexual assault and other issues, other related issues, why is it important for boys' schools to be educating their students about consent? Well, I think what's always interested me and as I began my speaking journey over 30 years ago, I... I think in the initial conversations when I would ask to speak at an all boys school and in where I began some of my first speeches were at boarding schools in the Northeast of the US and the co-ed boarding schools welcomed me because the assumption was the kids might hook up. (laughs) And while, you know, it wasn't even, they're not going to, they're not going to sexually assault each other, but they might hook up. And certainly the peril of college where the thought was then that sexual assault happened at 18 and above. I I think those those initial schools that hosted a a conversation around respect and consent were co-ed. And when I would approach an all boys boarding school, you know, just a, a, a hop, st- skip and a jump away from one of the co-ed ones, it was sometimes, oh, we we, we have only boys here. They're not going to get sexually assaulted at college. <laughs> so why do we need to teach them about consent or, or anything else? Because none of our boys would commit. The presumption, of course, is none of them would commit sexual assault. And therefore, why would they even need to really understand it? However, Bruce, the good news is I have now spoken, you know, at at quite a number of all boys schools, sometimes every single year to the seniors before they go off to college or sometimes every four years to, you know, at least four grades at a time. And I think what shifted was the humbling of a few things that I just mentioned. One is boys are sexually assaulted. Um, In fact, boys can be sexually assaulted most often at a younger age. Their heightened vulnerability statistically starts at age 12. Um, I just interviewed, um, you know, we run a podcast too with Speaking to Survivors and Anthony Edwards, who played Goose in Top Gun, is a survivor of um, r- rape and abuse when he was a child, basically, a young 12-year-old, 13-year-old person. And so that was one realization. Like, boys can be victimized. They do need to understand they have the right to say no. And also, if they don't say yes, that's also a no. So that was one one reason why boys are schools need to protect their own from from predators. The second thing that happened and, and is going on and why we need to be mindful is, unfortunately, some people commit sexual assault or boundary crossings. Um, it's not, it, it is still statistically the majority of perpetrators of sexual assault and abuse are still male pronoun, he pronoun identified but it doesn't mean most men are rapists or predators, but it does mean that 
statistically, if there are if there's a room full of men and women, and there's only one um, perpetrator in the room, it's more likely to be male. So why not at least do diligence and try to prevent those who might become predators or not understand that boundaries are important or not respect them or have a different understanding of power and control that might precipitate, you know, the, the, the boundary cross, that's preemptive strike to reduce the risk. You know, we, we had a Supreme Court nominee who went to an all boys private school here in the U.S. And he, he was accused of when he was about to become a Supreme Court justice and um, was when the allegations finally came about that he had allegedly committed sexual assault even in high school. So I think that it's very important for schools to realize that, you know, even if, if even if it's a quote, a misunderstanding, why do we, even if that, that case, even if any case was where someone felt you violated me and the alleged offender said, I don't think I did. We want to reduce the risk that even if it's a quote misunderstanding that that misunderstanding goes away. Right. So even if there is an actual boundary cross, we want to reduce we want to make everyone the best communicator possible so that they can hopefully prohibit or, or prevent that those kinds of, quote, misunderstandings or misperceptions of intention, et cetera. So that's the second is, you know, let's reduce the risk that someone might even be accused. And then thirdly, you know, I think we are now hearing the cases where in high school, the girls' school, the sister school, or the other co-ed schools do interact with the boys at the boys' schools. And some of those girls have accused some of those boys of committing sexual violence, sexual assault, harass harassment. And there is the need to make sure that um, all the students, boys and girls, are clear on understanding what consent, what consent is and what respect is. So those, I think, are the three things that drive the importance of boys' schools um, tackling this issue. I would say one more is litigation is up here in the United States around this issue. It's probably one of the most costly types of lawsuits against schools it is the, the whole gamut of sexual misconduct. So um, just if you have to go with the bottom line of money, um, that's all, that will motivate some too, you know, and, and not just money, but it's also harm to reputation and um, costly, you know, put, you know, positioning of social media and and messaging back to, you know, stave off or thwart or um, address accusations when they come. So I, I think it's it's just the right thing to do. But and it, and it's. it's definitely important. Yeah, it just strikes me how, how layered, you know, this this conversation is just even on the importance of it and, and why we should be having these conversations with boys and educating boys um, about consent. You know, as, as I've listened to you talk previously, Katie, I was struck by the connection between this idea of educating boys about consent, but also at the same time helping them to understand the qualities of respectful, healthy relationships. And, and and I'd love to to hear your thoughts on how schools might think about 
helping boys to understand those things, uh, the qualities of respectful and healthy relationships? Well, I think where I would start the answer to that question, Bruce, is a really important one because sometimes we get stuck in having this conversation in the school setting because of religious beliefs very strongly around waiting until marriage or abstaining from sexual contact or intimacy with a partner until they are the committed marriage partner, right? And to me, if we think about number one, a parallel is we still talk about alcohol and how alcohol impacts the body and how it impacts the brain and other drugs, hoping very much that our young people will comply with the law and not consume these things. So the, the, to me, the parallel is we should definitely talk about things with the expectation that it doesn't mean you have to do them. You can talk about consent without being sexually active. Um, you can also think to me about the fact that if we educate our young men about healthy, respectful relationships, there is a very good chance that most all of them at some point will want to have a healthy, respectful relationship and an intimate one as well. So knowing how to go about navigating that you know, part of life successfully when it's, when it's not just an opinion, there's a whole set of laws and policies that kind of govern what a healthy, respectful relationship is because you're not allowed, for example, under the law to, in the United States at least, I should say, and Australia, you know, Canada, the UK, you're not allowed to you know, get angry and have a fight with your partner and then hit them in the face because you're angry. <laughs> so that's assault. So what is a healthy, respectful relationship? Well, you're not allowed to beat someone up, <laughs> even when you're mad, even, even when they make you mad, you can't do that. Or, you know, you, you can't belittle and harass someone and make them feel um, less than worthy. That's harassment, you know, that's, that's bullying. So there, and there are laws about stalking, another type of sexual misconduct or, you know, a not healthy relationship type of, you know, when you're so needy or depend, codependent, you might hear a word like that, or so obsessed um, with knowing the every move of your partner that you follow them on social media, you scope out who all their friends are, where they are at every, every given moment and have expectations about what they can and can't do in your relationship. That's also an unhealthy relationship, but it's also against the law to stalk someone. So to me, we can, the nexus of consent, healthy relationships, and the law. And then we can also, you know, we can always talk about morals and values as well. But it's, to me, you can, you can, you can add to the conversation, Bruce, by addressing it from various perspectives, right? I think the, the ultimate goal is, you know, I said, have a partner someday, a, a successful, healthy relationship with a partner. But then if you have your own children, <laughs> if our young men grow up and become fathers, how are they going to teach their own children about the same and role model it for them? You know, it, it kind of goes full circle to the parent who says, well, I want to do that at home. Well, is it, 
you know, aren't you going to be bolstered in your ability to do so if you've been taught how to learn it and how to teach it? And I think what you said there is so important for me, you know, as schools think about um, what a lot of our schools talk about is character education. And I think, you know, as they think about character education, the lasting legacy, as you've spoken about, of of helping boys understand, you know, the qualities of healthy relationships. Um, and, and a lot of the work that schools can do now might um, bear fruit, so to speak, as you've said, in, in their children and their children's children. So, uh, again, it reminds me of, of how important these conversations are. Katie, it's probably difficult to distill this in a, in a short interview like this, but uh, I'm really keen for you to highlight what every boy should know about consent. You know, what are the characteristics of affirmative and enthusiastic consent that that schools should be having conversations with boys about or if their parents listening in um, to our conversation, that parents can have conversations about with their sons. I, I'm so glad you used those words, Bruce, because they're the cutting edge word choices, affirmative and enthusiastic here in the U.S. And that was, you know, again, if we help our, our listeners understand the scope of change over time, when I was on the cover of Time magazine, I was one human, maybe one of the first ever to say that a boundary is not crossed just because someone forces you into an act. You don't have to resist or stop them. And, you know, we kind of go back to you and I are older and, you know, I, I know we'll have all generations of listeners, but I can still remember when I was a little kid in front of a, a, a TV with no remote control, watching a cartoon where Bam Bam was, you know, like hitting a girl on the head with a with a big old piece of wood or something, um, you know, like, and then drags her with the hair off stage. And uh, if that was courtship, <laughs> Back then, that's like, okay, well, she didn't fight you back because you conked her on the head. So if, we, if we've if we come so far, um, the evolution was I, I kind of said, okay, well, he didn't conk me on the head with a big bat. But I, I didn't say yes. I, I said no. Um, now, how much force did he have to use back then? And that became the start of the conversation. So as, as we're thinking about how boys and parents and educators can think about this um, concept of consent all the way to what you said, enth enthusiastic affirmative consent, which is where we are now. The steps along the way are to try and show the degrees and differentiations between like, we like, let's do it. <laughs> um, excitement, you know, jumping up and down on a table, not wearing many clothes, you know, saying I'm ready. Um, that's pretty enthusiastic <laughs> and they need to be sober, of course, which we'll get to in a second. But I think um, there's then, you know, you don't have to now back 30 years ago, you did have to have force involved. Now, I said, well, if, if they do something to you without your consent, that should be against 
you know, against your will. You didn't give your permission. You didn't make your red light turn green, if you will. I have a, a, a concept in a curriculum called Respect My Red. Respect me as a red light until I show you, tell you that I'm green. Now, show versus tell, Bruce, is the next nuance. What do you need to do to give effective, clear consent? Um, for a while in the 90s and early 00s, we in the U.S. and a few other places around the country, around the world, I'm sorry, uh, Canada included, we're, we're thinking about, well, how how do we clear this up for people? Because is a wink, if I wink at you, was that consent? <laughs> um, or what if I had something stuck in my eye? If I, you know, wear a certain shirt that, you know, says have sex with me on the, on the, on the stamped on the shirt is my shirt giving consent for me. <laughs> right. It, you know, or, or if you find out that I've had um, an intimate relationship with two of your friends, do you think, well, it's my turn, <laughs> you know, it, reputation. So past history, if I've, if we've hooked up once, do we keep hooking up until you stop me? Do you, do you, did I just become a permanent green light, right? So all of these kinds of questions, Bruce, became challenges and confusion. You can see they're they're confusing. Um, they're not they're not dictionary, Wikipedia type clear definitions. So and and the 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 college judicial process was really struggling here in the U.S. to navigate. How do we navigate those cases where one person thought that that was consent, one person thought it wasn't consent? And we're not talking about they were speaking different languages. <laughs> we're talking about the, those nuances of understanding and perceptions of various ways of communicating, right? Then the this affirmative and enthusiastic notion came about about five, six, seven, eight years ago to really clarify and say affirmative means you must use words, not um, nonverbals, and you must clearly be affirmative, meaning you must clearly state, yes, I want to do this. And then the nuance even further down the line became, well, you know, in the U.S., we always say there is a phrase, you know, how many bases did you get? <laughs> how and, and, the, and, and what's interesting to me is that concept in and of itself puts things in an order, <laughs> intimacy in a certain ranking or order first base before you can't just run backwards <laughs> or go right to home, to home, to home, like hit the ball and stay there. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think what then we challenged was you can't just assume that you can keep, you got a first yes, like, can I kiss you? Yes. And then you just kept going, your hands could go places, you know, you could start taking off. You didn't, everyone said, well, no, wait, that's not clear either, because you're assigning valuation to a ranking of intimacy, different types of intimacy. Um, and, you know, then we even got into the, con the, the, the concern that, you know, this is heteronormative. And um, what about every other, you know, identity out there? So that's where we land. So I think it's very complicated. It is, it's not, it's not calculus. <laughs> it's not physics, but, but it is, I think the problem is in some ways it's not math. Math, at least while challenging is linear and there's a clear answer to a problem um, most all the time. And in the social sciences, it's, 
there's still, um, what did you see and what did I see when the cars hit each other? We are going to see different things if we're standing by the same um, highway. And that perception is where I think the challenge is. We have to talk it out and and really get people mindfully engaging in their actions. Alcohol and other drugs, and now I definitely say other drugs because there are a lot of drugs of choice now. And if you're not then capacitated, if you're not fully capacitated to make that consent choice, even if you're saying yes, if you're incapacitated, it's effectively a no under the law. So, and then the question then becomes how drunk is too drunk? (laughs) Is it too drunk to drive a car, too drunk to have sex, or is it something else? There's no, in the US, in the the law, the state laws, there's no BAC associated with incapacitated. Now, some colleges do, in fact, pretty much go more narrowly and say to not just the word incapacitated, Bruce, they'll say if you're drunk, which means more like the 0.08, which for a 110 pound person, they're going to be there in a drink and a half, you know, so it's not much. And we also know that, you know, there's this, there's many out there who drink while they're engaging in or consume alcohol or other drugs while they're engaging in intimate moments. So that again complicates the system, the whole situation. But I, I, I would say, all of this is is part of that educational process for for young people. And then the other side of that, which we could talk about if you want, is then bystander, upstander engagement, where we teach, even if you're not in the situation, if you are aware of friends or um, colleagues, um, other students in your school who are behaving in this way or are in challenging situations, then how do you navigate um, through helping them get out of those situations, much like we do with alcohol, again, going back to that parallel, which is, you know, we then teach how do you get the person not to drive drunk. Katie, it just seems important for me then, and all the more important that, you know, schools need to be intentional about um, developing um, programs and also developing understanding of particularly consent and other issues um, in their faculty and staff, particularly those who engage with boys in these conversations. Absolutely. And and I think it, it it can't be once and done, Bruce, like all too often. When, again, my journey is so long because I started when I was pretty much 18. Um, I'm getting old, but, you know, I think what what's a, a blessing to me is that I've had this ginormous opportunity through, you know, my one experience to traverse now the world and work with India and China and Australia and Canada, you know, all over the place and think about um, how do we do this well to, to best match the mission of each school. And I don't believe one thing I don't think we can do on an, on an issue like this is make a one size fits all curriculum. But what I would challenge our schools to do 
is to think about what the content is, the learning outcomes are that we want to achieve, just like we do with any curriculum development, and then make a match to how do we talk about them in a way that will connect best with our community, whether it be the students, the parents, or the educators themselves. So, and and I do think the three-layered approach is, is imperative uh, to only educate one group only like, oh, we don't have to teach the faculty because we'll cover the students. But what if the faculty, you, you know, we, we have some schools, unfortunately, I know even some of your members have had situations where the faculty have been the um, perpetrators. So, and, and I, I, parents can be perpetrators. One of my independent schools here had a mother who was having a sexual relationship with one of the minors at the school who was a friend of her son's. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we have to, I really think, and, and we want to empower everyone to use common vocabulary that feels, that's clear. It builds out a skill set where we can all talk about this issue on the same page, more or less. Um, and so having one assembly for 42 and a half minutes all the ninth through 12th graders in a high school is not going to work because you think about a ninth grade boy who's 14 versus the senior who's 18, they're developmentally completely different humans <laughs> and they're, and they've had different amounts of life experience. And this, unlike math requires life experience. It requires you to have had, you know, different types of interactions to really be able to first person analyze some of the case studies with, with real coming to it, not theoretically, but with some knowledge of how it feels to be in those awkward moments. So you, I think you have a different conversation with young people around any issue, the more wide open their eyes are because they've lived more life. I, I wanted to pick your brain on, on one more thing before we close, Katie. You know, beyond the role that boys' schools can play, in educating boys about healthy and respectful relationships and consent, as we've been speaking about, there, there's surely some policy and culture considerations that exist for teachers and particularly leaders, you know, heads um, in, in boys' schools. Okay. So, again, that's a journey I've taken with quite a number of schools, Bruce, where the head and I and their, their leadership team really – take a deeper dive on how do we affect lasting, meaningful policy and culture change in the school. Oftentimes, I think the, the sad part is schools don't come to me with that query until things are pretty badly broken. <laughs> like the media has called them out and things feel very hot and uncomfortable. But if I could give advice on the process, it, it, it's, you want to do it preemptively, of course, and, and really assessing as you go is better than waiting until you hear about it, then it's too late. So here, here's some don'ts. I'll do some don'ts, Bruce, and then I'll do some do's because I'm going to do the don'ts that I hear when I, when a when a leader, school leader, just says, "Oh, we've got this," 
here's what they will often say. Here's our, here are their common responses. And I know they don't have it. They've only, they only think they've handled it because they're wired. That it seems like the right answer. You know, like it's like when I, I do a session for, about transitions to college, Bruce, and I'll say when you go on the tour at the college or university, you know, a lot of places here in the U.S. we say college. A lot of other places around the world they say university, right? When you do the tour at the university with a student-led tour guide and you, the parent, raise your hand and you say to the guide, how safe is is your school? I, I often say, what do they usually say to you back? And the guides will often say, we're as safe as any school in our league, which essentially, it sounds good. <laughs> Unless your ear is trained, unless your ear is trained to, to know that they just told you nothing. <laughs> they just told you nothing. They didn't give you any statistics. They didn't prove their data point. They didn't give you, they gave you nothing but a cursory answer, you know? And I, and so this, that's, that's what the analogy I use to what doesn't work. And that's why I, I hope very much this podcast can empower our school leaders with your overflowing plates. I know something always has to follow the list, but this has got to get on there somewhere. So things that I hear, oh, we we had a climate we did. We, were, we know our we assessed our gender and relationship and respect issue because we did this fill in the blank general climate survey. And there are some okay ones out there, but I'm going to tell you none, of, just like 30 years ago when I was trying to revolutionize how we defined terms, those surveys that I've seen that the schools say they did their due diligence, they don't determine anything. They don't really, the, the one that I, and I would be happy to give it out to all of your schools and have them all do it as a group effort. So no one has to feel isolated. I'd rather have all of us do it. But the ones, the schools, when they got in the hot water and we did the one that I created with my team of 25 guru researcher, research teams, um, it gets to where is stuff happening? All the locations, the physical buildings on campus, off campus, who saw what, when, where, how, nuances, how many times. It's so detailed. It's going to help you get the problem solved and know exactly how to tackle it. So I would say one don't and one do is don't tell me you did a climate survey where you had four questions on some other larger survey of 100. And the other thing I don't believe is schools will say, well, our kids are surveyed out. They're only surveyed out if you don't bring that survey to life for them. There's not one school where I implemented this awesome survey without having like a team of really cool humans talk about, oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing. You have to be really honest. Don't blow this off. And we get them excited about filling out the questions. Um, so it, you ha it's always be selling is, I forget whose motto that is, but if you, if you want to get the job done, you have to make it great. So that's, that's do and don't. Another one I would say to get the policy right is don't tell me our lawyer looked at it. To me, I there are so few lawyers I've ever met who know this stuff cold. The only ones who know this topic really, really well are the ones suing the schools <laughs> and winning. 
I hate to tell you that the, the other that on the other side, most of the lawyers that work for the schools, even the ones with pretty good firms, the bad news, Bruce, is when I look at their work, it's like they went to the general practitioner and not the otolaryngologist. They needed the specialty, especially, um, and, and the policies can't just repeat state law. So another don't is just don't dump in, you know, the state law of your province or, you know, your state, your California, that's, you don't want that in your handbook. You want to really do, do the educational type policy that you do with the rest of your handbook. Another one I would say is make a match to your handbooks and the policies therein with what you're teaching, you know, because if you bring in the local volunteer crisis center to do your education and they're teaching a whole different set of definitions than you have in your own handbook, you're also going to get called out for that by the lawyers if they get hold of it. So it's a, it's a long answer, Bruce, but I think there are steps to be taken and, and you can, you know, I would say most of the time it's, it's a year of heavy lifting to do it really well with the, ch the culture change and the policy. It's definitely a year and it's really, I, the best schools I've worked with, we make a four-year plan of integrating it. And you might, like I even, one school, we, they knew they couldn't get it, everything in the handbook year one, but we pre-wrote what we wanted to step out for four years. So it was all done and, you know, we could tweak it. We could still go back and edit it, but we had a vision and it was ready to go. You know, it wasn't a patchwork quilt. It was an ongoing kind of masterpiece. So I, I think those are some words of wisdom I would give to the leadership teams. Katie, I always love speaking with you and learning from you. Uh, and I know that a conversation like ours only scratches the surface, but I feel like we've raised some important issues and you've highlighted some very important um, things. But as we close our conversation, I just want to ask if you'd be able to share um, a little bit about how schools who might be interested in, in speaking with you or connecting with you and the work you do, uh, how, how can they get in touch with you? That's very kind, Bruce. I, you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm also so excited about working with any of your um, schools because I can help them think through navigating that um, with the, at least with the international work I've done to date too. But easily, the best thing to do is you can visit our campusoutreachservices.com website. And my email is k for katie.kessner, my last name, K-O-E-S-T-N-E-R at campusoutreachservices.com. So any or all, and there's an intake question form on the website if you want to fill it out. Um, and if the, the other resource that, you know, there's lots of things for free, for sure, that we can give any school. We just, you know, need to know, we'd like you to contact us because then we can give you the things that will help you the most because we there's not, again, like it's, to me, it's never one size fits all, but it's learning from you, from each school, what they really need the most help with. Well, thank you so much, Katie. Again, um, wonderful to speak to you. And uh, as I said earlier, to learn from you. And I trust that our 
audience, those who are listening to will be just raring to go and 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 dive deeper into this important topic and to have these conversations with with the boys in their care or continue the conversations that they're already having. And I, I'm hoping that this um, conversation we've had will be will be an encouragement to them too. So thank you so much for your time, for your expertise, for your wisdom. Um, it's always a pleasure to to listen to and speak with you. Thank you so much, Bruce. It's a pleasure to join you as well. And I do very much hope our conversation will help um, help you in, inspire your schools and their their students and their. You can always throw this out to the students. Sometimes the student uh, peer educators and peer leaders are some of the most eager to foment change. So I, I love empowering our next generation too. As you consider the takeaways from this interview for your own context, I'd encourage you to, to access Dr. Ada Sinekor's IBSC commissioned research report on responsible sexual citizenship, which I mentioned in the introduction to this episode. The full research reports, executive summary and summary of recommendations can be found in IBSC Member Center. Sinecore suggests that schools should consider adopting a holistic framework that moves beyond clinical discussions of sexual health and addresses ethics, social responsibility, human rights and gender equity. Adopting a holistic framework such as sexual citizenship can help schools design and plan inclusive and comprehensive programming. A holistic framework can also develop a shared vocabulary between schools, families and community partners to ensure everyone is working from a common understanding. As we close this episode, all of us at IBSC would like to thank you for your spirited dedication to guiding boys on their journey into adulthood. We wish you peace, joy, and robust health in 2022. Until our next episode, keep safe and well.